0: This time around, I was delighted to welcome back Mark Healy to the show. But just before we get into that, here's a word from our lovely brand new sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr Barton Maths Podcast is proudly supported by ArcMaths. Now, one of the biggest changes to my planning and teaching over the last five years is my increased awareness of the importance of providing retrieval opportunities for my students. In the past, all my thoughts and efforts went into planning questions, activities and explanations. In other words, stuff to help students get something into their heads. What was severely lacking was opportunities to help my students get that knowledge out again. By assuming that just because students could do something they'd just been taught, it must have been learnt, I found myself in a vicious spiral of teaching something, moving on, and then having to teach it again and again and again, when students had frustratingly forgotten something that they once knew. (sighs) The problem is, of course, that scheduling in retrieval opportunities is difficult, especially when each child in a class has different priorities in terms of what they need practice on. Mirren needs more practice of straight line graphs, whereas Josh needs to work on factorising quadratic expressions. What's the solution? Well, step forward, arc maths. ArcMaths is an app that's currently available for the iPad, but with hopes of expansion to other devices in the future. The entire Key Stage 3 and 4 curriculum is broken down into 1550 slightly different skills and pieces of knowledge called Microtopics. Each Microtopic has a set of associated questions which test that particular skill or knowledge. How are the questions chosen, I hear you ask? Well, there are 12 questions in a session which are specifically chosen for each pupil. Question 1 is a times table multiplication. Question 2 is a times table division. Question 3 and 4 are revision questions. And then it starts to get really clever. The schedule of spaced practice dictates what questions are selected for the remaining questions. Forgotten microtopics appear with greater frequency. New microtopics are introduced if space allows. What about differentiation? Well, each session is specific to the attainment level of that pupil. Individual weaknesses are addressed immediately and also subsequently. So Mirren's session is different to Josh's session. What about teacher workload? Because this is the big hassle when you're trying to do this manually. Well, questions are chosen, created, delivered and marked automatically by the app. Follow-up practice questions then self-generate. Gaps in knowledge are recorded and tracked automatically. And pupils create their own accounts so administration is kept to the minimum. How do students answer their answers? Well, this is where the app gets even smarter with incredibly impressive handwriting recognition technology. Being able to draw square root signs, write indices and fractions and complex algebraic expressions without having to go anywhere near a keyboard is a massive step forward for maths online learning tech tools. You can also draw the diagrams too, much as if it was a worksheet. Now, ArcMaths is designed for the classroom. It could be a 10-minute activity suitable for a lesson starter with students working on their own devices. No instructions are needed. They can just get cracking. Or the app could be used at home with students building it into their d- daily or weekly routine outside of the classroom. Now, I've been playing around with the app for a while and it is brilliant. It can even recognize my dodgy handwriting. The app is built on research that will be very familiar to listeners of the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. Bjork, Rodiger, and Roer, surrounding memory, and even the uncluttered interface would please John Sweller, allowing students to focus purely on the mathematics. To find out more, just visit arceducation.co.uk, and that's ARC with a C, not a K. And ARC are currently looking for schools to try out their app for free. So if you're interested, there's a link at the top of the show notes page of this podcast episode where you can register your interest in a free trial. Check out ARC Maths, ARC with a C, and help your students remember what they once knew. And if you are interested in spreading the word about your product, service or event to thousands of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out about the sponsor packages available. But back to today's show with Mark Healy. Now, you may remember from last time that Mark is a teacher of psychology and also deputy headteacher up in sunny Scotland. But Mark's also had a wide range of teaching experience in the UAE, Hong Kong and in pupil referral units. Now, I first got to know Mark when I was lucky enough to see him give a talk about sleep at Research Head Blackpool a few years ago. And I've been a big fan ever since. I've also been lucky enough to visit his school a couple of times to work with his team and see some of the wonderful things that are going on there. Now, this is Mark's second appearance on the podcast. When he was on the show earlier in the year, I had every intention of speaking to Mark about sleep. However, as is often the case with the wonderful guests I have on the show, we got carried away discussing lots of other things, most notably creating a culture in school whereby CPD thrives and change is sustainable. But this time around, I was determined to finally get to talk about sleep. But of course, that didn't stop us covering lots of other things as well. So in what proved to be another fascinating conversation, we discussed the following things and plenty more besides. With Scottish schools having been back for five weeks now, what challenges have Mark and his team faced in the COVID climate that we now live in? And what advice does he have for the rest of us just beginning to get to grips with school life as we've never known it before? Then it's time for all things sleep related. Why is sleep so important? What happens if we don't get enough sleep? And then perhaps most importantly of all, how can schools encourage both students and teachers to take sleep seriously? And as part of that, we get to hear Mark's 10 sleeping commandments. We then turn our attention to growth mindset. And I ask if it is an actual thing that teachers can help their students develop or a load of nonsense. And Mark ends the show with a succinct one-word review of Angela Duckworth's book, Grit. I always find Mark fantastic company, and this chat was no exception. Two quick plugs before we start... Firstly, with large-scale face-to-face CPD very much off the agenda for the time being, I've taken the opportunity to produce extended online versions of my most popular one-day courses. They are focusing thinking, atomisation, worked examples, intelligent practice, problem solving, retrieval and formative assessment. Each workshop goes into far more depth than I will be able to in a normal day and contains bite-sized videos as well as links to research, podcasts and activities that teachers can consume in their own time in a safe environment. You can find out more at craigbarton.podia.com and there's a link to that in the show notes. Second, this week marked the launch of my lockdown project, the ED Ultimate Scheme of Work. This consists of 200 plus quizzes made of more than 3,000 diagnostic questions, all completely for free. The questions can be used in class for formative assessment and that's particularly useful to get a sense of whole class understanding when we're tied to the front of our classrooms in the Covid climate. All the quizzes can be set individually or mapped to your existing scheme of work. I'm dead, dead proud of it. It took me flipping ages, this. And there's a link to the show notes that takes you right to the collection page. I really hope you and your students find it useful. Anyway, without further ado, let me reintroduce Mark Healy. I really hope you enjoy this one. And unless you're Angela Duckworth, I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Mark. Well, first off, welcome back to the podcast, and so let me start with a simple question for you. Um, how's lockdown and the the virus, just in general, been for you in your in your personal and home life? Before we dive into school,
1: you know, uh, uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me back. I wasn't sure after episode <laughs> one if that would happen, <laughs> but I do appreciate that invite back. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I mean, we've run out of adjectives and superlatives and everything to describe lockdown and schools closing. Um, It was, as I'm sure most people around the world, um, felt a very surreal experience. It certainly wasn't something that I think anyone had at the forefront of their planning at the start of the year. Um, and I'm, if I'm going to be honest, I don't think anyone had that at the forefront of the planning post Christmas either. When it seemed that the virus was um, spreading in, in China, I don't even think in January there was a sense that by by ma- the end of March we would go, we would be shutting schools in their ent- entirety as physical places of learning, but obviously continuing with our their online learning. Um, so, home, uh, adapting to to not going to work and I mean it had it, I'm not gonna lie, it had its pros and cons. Um you had the the wonderful world of not necessarily driving to work every day and fighting Russia or traffic. Um you had the experience of getting used getting used to Microsoft Teams. We're very lucky in Scotland, Craig, we have something called Glow. Have you heard of
0: it? No, I haven't.
1: No. Glow is is our national network. Um, basically, I, I would have said an intranet and old money, but it's, it's much, much, much more advanced than that. And essentially, Glow allows everybody, in, every educator in Scotland to be able to access the Microsoft suite. So you can download Microsoft Office for free if you're a teacher. Um, but it also allows you to use Microsoft Teams, Microsoft Forums to, to upload work. So um, we, we had the benefit of that, and I, I do think it came into its own then, um, along with, obviously, I, I think a growing number of schools using Show My Homework. So it was um, it was tough, I think, especially for certificate classes to try and get everything they wanted to get done and, and get done in a way they they, they felt would have done justice to both them as teachers and the pupils in front of them as learners. And then obviously we got the announcement that the the exams were being scrapped, Mm. which I think was similar to England. Is that correct? That's right, yes. So the whole scenario then became teachers frantically frantically, um, making sure that their evidence base of estimate grades was robust. Um, And then because our exams in Scotland are... Roughly the week one in August, we would get the results. We got until the end of May to submit our estimate grades, and there was obviously a lot of guidance from our um, SQA, which is a exam body. And teachers were working hard to make sure they were as reliable as possible. And actually, that was a lot of work. There was a lot, a lot of work. There was a lot of cross moderation, moderation. There was a lot of dialogue. There was a lot of trying to get, trying to do the right thing without necessarily inflating grades and, 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 in some sense, cutting corners. Uh, and then, as you know, um, when when the first cohort of, um, or the first set of exam results came out in early August, it certainly caused a degree of contention amongst <laughs> quite a lot of the young people, which is a very polite way of saying it. Um, and thereafter, um, the Scottish government, John Swinney, took the decision to revert back to teacher estimate grades, and then re-award certificates. So it has been very, very, very unusual, very frenetic since we've been back. I'm not going to lie. I speak a lot, Craig, about the intensification and the acceleration of... A teacher's role, Um, and especially for me as a senior leader, I speak a lot over the last five years about how it's intensified and accelerated, not just time-wise, but in terms of the number of plates that you have to spin. And I have to say, and this is my my own personal viewpoint, it's obviously not the viewpoint of the authority that I work for or the head teacher that I work for. I do I do find the first five weeks that we've been back, there's, there's been an, an even larger increase in the pace of life in school. Um, there are certain normals that the, the, the pupils and the teachers get used to. You're walking around the corridor with your, your masks on. The pupils, it's, it, it's an, it's, I don't care what anybody says to you, it, it's an ongoing battle to keep them wearing masks in the corridor and in open spaces. Uh, and you just have to keep doing it and you just have to keep doing it and you just have to keep doing it and it has to be that iterative comment please, please, please keep your masks on and then, you know, the sanitizers everywhere and just meeting them at the main entrance and saying sanitize your hand, sanitize your hand, sanitize your hand I mean, you're, you're pretty much saying the same thing about 350 million times <laughs> per day um, and <laughs> you're just doing your best to try and keep schools open Genuinely to keep them open. Um, And that is the overarching emphasis at the moment, along with obviously good quality learning and teaching is to keep schools as safe as we can. And it's, it's hard. It's hard Well,
0: this is one. There's many reasons I wanted you back back on the show, Mark. But one of these is that in Scotland, obviously, you're a, you're a good few weeks ahead of us here in England in terms of kids having gone back. And um, well, well, I've got a few questions about how how these weeks have been. And um, first off, how have the kids been? How have they reacted? Have you have you noticed any trends there in in how they were when they first came back week one compared to what's happened over the the last couple of weeks? Have things have things settled down a bit? And what's been the reaction of the kids to being back at school?
1: I think I'm, I'm I'm going to take it back from March all the way through until the end of the end of school term in Scotland, which is late June. Teachers put a lot of work um, into their online resources, um, and there was a whole raft of media, social media platforms, and digital literacy platforms that people used, from Microsoft Teams to show my homework. And on the whole, the engagement with it peaked. Pretty early in April, and then went down significantly mm. thereafter. To the point, Craig, that I have to say, an, an informal dialogue with with people across across the country. Yeah, I think I think it was a, a case that we had a, a a high a higher level of engagement with the learning um, and the stuff that teachers had put online uh, at the beginning, and then there was. A strong feeling amongst teachers that they were giving out a lot of work and they were getting short and, and small returns in mm-hmm. terms of numbers um, and that that, that kind of line or that, that curve um, steepened towards the end of lockdown and as we became closer to the holidays and you know I've, I'm trying to take a temperature dip with some of our some of our teachers and basically what they're saying to me is they they feel it's a kind of binary now. You've got students who really, really missed missed the the, the face-to-face teaching and and really getting stuck into their learning and and it's fabulous to see. But you've got those students who there seems to be a residual fallout from that and there's kind of a more laconic attitude towards learning and it's been been hard to to, to reinstill those boundaries and reinstill those expectations and reinstill that high level of challenge and support which some kids need, let's be honest. Um, and I think what's made it slightly more difficult, uh, in some sense, but obviously safety being the the imperative, is that the school day's been reconfigured so that all all subjects in every year stage uh, are now double period so that they're just going in the building, out the building, in the building, out the building, and traffic around the building is minimised uh, as much as possible. Now, there's absolutely good and um, uh, it's medical and clinical grounds to support that, but there is a massive impact in terms of some subjects and some ages where their attention and those, those lessons for a double period is something they're not used to. So, double period of RE, a double period of PSHE, um, they're, they're finding quite difficult. Um, so, it has challenges, but I have to say that the overarching imperative is for Schools to remain open, face-to-face teaching, and if we have to go to double periods across the board, then we have to go to double periods of the bo- across the board.
0: And what are you doing, Mark, as as both a teacher and a senior leader, to to get these kids back on board, the ones who perhaps aren't engaging, the perhaps the ones who haven't reacted as you wanted them to being back in school? What what, what what's the kind of message to those kids, and what what messages are getting through to them?
1: I think it's just a case of, and I, I, it's what what one of my old previous head teachers would have said is. Get the sole of your shoes well worn and get round the school. Do regular temperature dips. Use your support team, your pastoral team, to to, to have chats with these kids where possible. Phone parents. Have one-to-one dialogue. Make sure the kids know that you're coming in and out of class frequently as you can. And try and reassert what our, our boundaries and expectations are. Have them consistently implemented and obviously, I think for us is just to say to them, look, the benefits of education haven't changed. If education is that wonderful currency towards giving you a choice in life, then that's still the case, and you need to work towards that. And yes, the external circumstances are different. Yes, the, extern- the internal life of this of the school is slightly different. But the mechanism of learning and teaching and expectations are still solidly there. And it's just iterative, Craig. It's just iterative and just keep on talking to them. And we obviously we can't use assemblies because we're not allowed whole school mm. gathering. So you're trying to just filter it down to staff, to filter it down to, to teachers. And you're trying to get pastoral care to, ta- to, to talk to parents. Um, and we're not allowed face-to-face meetings with parents. So a lot of that is done by phone as well and just constantly keeping them in the loop. That constant transparent dialogue one of my previous ed teachers turned around and said to me parents should have no surprises should (laughs) have no surprises and if we're sending a having a a, a dialogue with a parent um, when it's face to face uh, whether it's at parents night or and it's a surprise to them then we're not doing a job properly because there should be precursor stuff happening way before that The difficulty now is you don't have the luxury of face-to-face, but we still need to communicate what expectations are, and we still need to communicate, and I keep going back to this what Biesta called the beautiful risk of education, (laughs) and it's there, and the benefits still exist, and actually, Craig, you could argue in a world where COVID has had a a mega catastrophic um, economic impact on some communities and some industries, maybe there's a even greater imperative to reinforce to pupils that actually, actually working at school and giving yourself that choice when you leave school, whether it's apprenticeship, whether it's college, whether it's go directly into the world of work, whether it's university, is even more important. Mm. Um.
0: I've so, I've so many questions to ask ask you Mark about this. Just just one more just on on a practical level. And um, how yep. how have you and your colleagues found the actual teaching? What, what what's working there? Because this is one thing I'm getting through on Twitter and emails. Just colleagues completely having to change how they teach. They're rooted to the front of the classroom. Sometimes they're even yep. like in a pre drawn yep. box. They can't yep. go around the room. Well, what yep. what what have you picked up that's working well for you and your colleagues in 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 terms of teaching?
1: Well, it's interesting because I actually had a chat about that today at lunchtime with one of the physics teachers, um, and he said that what seems to work really well is, although we're doing face-to-face teaching, that that use of technology still in the classroom, even though, I, I don't know if we would call it blended learning as a nomenclature, but the idea that Obviously, we can't go face-to-face right up to the desk and give the feedback in the way that we used to. So there's simple things like whole class feedback, generic errors that are still prevalent across the majority of the class. We can still impact, we can still address those misconceptions. There's the visualiser when you're doing your work to examples and you're, you're, you're kind of uh, Ron Berger's ethic of excellence, where you want to show the best model and how we um, kind of go towards that. So th- those things allow the teacher to stay at the front but they still allow that, that, that good pedagogical um, trade craft, if you like, to be evident. Uh, you could argue that the, the benefits of direct instruction <laughs> are becoming very clear. Um, and what I also think, though, is, and this is what a lot of teachers here have said, that getting this, the, the, the children to be able to, to, to send the work to them on Teams or show my homework so that it can be corrected and fed back is, is really, really valuable. Um, So I think that blended approach of what works in terms of the use of technology, whether it's a visualizer, whether it's whole-class feedback on the whiteboard, uh, and then marrying that to being able to give feedback, written feedback using um, your kind of technological bases, like Show My Homework or Microsoft Teams, I think that, if you like, hybrid model seems to be something which is... is, um, successful with teachers but yeah they have to fight their own inclination because it's really difficult not to not to kind of want to go up to someone and yes and, and give that immediate feedback you know it's like saying to Rory McIlroy you're his coach but well, you can't give him feedback on his swing until the 18th green and you think <laughs> oh no, that's why why would I do that so oh vid Video, video them in the second t mark and just send a, send them a WhatsApp video and and put a link under it. <laughs> it's probably not as effective as as me having a chat with them. But if that's what we have to do to avoid physical contact, then I'm afraid that's the reality that we live in
0: do you find um that your teachers have embraced technology a bit more because they've had to use it while schools have been closed and that's been possibly if there are any positives about what's happened that maybe is one that the teachers have had to upskill a little bit more in terms of technology or was it always the case that they were using technology like this
1: no i think i think it's the former i think a lot of people um have had to upskill i think that a lot of people um, I don't even know if I would call it upskill. I always think when you put up in front of it as a as a a free morpheme, when you put up in front of it, it's, it highlights a deficit. I, I I don't even know if I would. I'm comfortable with that terminology. I just think they have to find different ways of 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 kind of teaching and interacting with with pupils from what the the previous norm has been. Um, for some. It hasn't stretched their comfort zone. For others, it has. For others, it's precipitated anxiety. Hmm. There was a lot, I'm not overly sure about England, Craig, but in Scotland, there was a lot of dialogue around whether or not teachers should or should not do live lessons. Yes, yes. Uh, And I think the professional associations put out very clearly if people were uncomfortable with that, then don't do it. And obviously there was child protection guidelines about not being able to see the children, and the cameras being switched off from the teacher end, but the pupils only been able to see the, see the teacher. Um, those 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 things had to be taken into account if we were doing live lessons. But yeah, I think people had to change people had to change their approaches. Um, and for some people it was a bigger change, for other people it was a tweak. Um, and I think. For those people who had to do it as a as a shift, as a big shift, they probably welcomed face-to-face teaching with a lesser emphasis on technology, but I hope that they've got that procedural knowledge now where they are able to, if, in essence, adapt both when required.
0: And how do you how do you kind of share that around the school? If if for example you've got a teacher who's finding a really effective way of of teaching under these circumstances, but you can't have the traditional kind of inset or twilight session where all your staff come together and you share some good practice, how as a leader are you sharing good practice and tips and and helping out anxious teachers cope in in yeah. the in the circumstances that we find ourselves in? That that must be tough.
1: It is tough. It is tough because operationally you've got so many plates to spin around hygiene and social distancing um, and mask wearing um, and discipline and behaviour and boundaries. So you find so many plates spinning that I'm not going to lie, the the, the finer nuances and filter on pedagogy Mm -hmm. are are taking a back seat at the moment. Um, and I have to say that the the emphasis on, for example, being proficient on war on Microsoft Teams or forums or show my homework. We have sent information out. We're very lucky that Education Scotland uh, have, have have created online kind of video blogs that are very very good at helping. There's a, a team of uh, Microsoft experts who are, are are more than willing to to remotely help. Uh, And there's always experts in the school who who create their own, if you like, kind of dummies guide, which uh, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I just mean in a sense that allows teachers to be able to do something um, quickly um, and easily. Um, But I would be wrong to tell you that after week five, we've, we've put a massive emphasis on the nuance of that. It's still very much... the the safety procedures, the the, the wearing the mask, the sanitising, the the behaviour, the re-expectations, the boundaries, the the high levels of support, the one-to-one dialogue. Um, I do agree that it's important, um, but um, I I think that that dialogue uh, will be further down the line. And if anybody in schools who've been there for the five five weeks that we've been there, they would probably say the same thing at the moment, Craig. Yeah,
0: makes perfect sense, mate. Um, Just before we move on um, to to bigger, well, other issues that we wanted to talk about, I just wonder if there's anything else you'd like to add about what you've learned in these last five weeks that you think other people may benefit from. Is is there anything you want to add to what you've said already? Yes. (laughs) Go for it.
1: Yes. What surprised you? (laughs) meet the kit, get a high visibility of staff around the school, and it just cannot be the senior leadership doing it because there's not enough of them. Get out at break times, get out before school, get out at lunch times, get out after school, and really, really get a handle on the kids coming through the door, what mindset they're in. Make sure you get, and it's, it's, it's so destroying at times because it's this iterative message that you just think, I've said it, I've said it, I've said it, but it's really important to spread that consistency across the staff. You know, kids really do need to walk down the corridors with their masks on and teachers need to do that. But there's a dual responsibility and accountability about health for everyone. It's not just in school, it's the families that we all have at home. Um, and there's also a, a, a civic responsibility and a moral responsibility to each other. And what simple things like regularly saying, being at entrances as they come in and say, please sanitise your hand or yourself sanitise and please do it now. Please put your mask on in an open space. That takes more than five or six people in the SLT. uh, And we've been very, very fortunate that we've had a lot of people buy into that. Um, And I think one of the things I would say to schools in the early stages is get your soles of your shoes well worn, get round to school, get high visibility, get across the board, middle classroom and senior leaders out and about reinforcing consistently in the corridors, in the canteen, at the school entrances, what we need to do to keep schools safe and to keep schools open. Because ultimately, it's it's to benefit everyone.
0: Fantastic, superb message, superb. Um, right, well, I want to now move on to something that we should have talked about last time, but we got carried away with loads of other stuff. And this was <laughs> this was this was the kind of main reason I wanted you on the show in the first place. Because the good first luck. the first time I ever saw you give a talk was at Research Ed Blackpool about three yeah. or four years ago now, where you spoke well, about sleep. And sleep is something yeah. that I've been obsessed with for a good few years now. And then when I heard you talk about it, I went ahead and I read the Matthew Walker. A book and a few yeah. other things and i'm yeah. a little bit too obsessed with sleep now but what fascinated me about your talk was you were you were coming at it from the theoretical perspective but then you also had the practical the fact that you were a teacher and you were the lessons that you'd learned from these books and these papers yeah. you were then thinking okay what does this mean for me my colleagues my and my students so yeah. to open up this this conversation on sleep mark just give us a bit of an overview why is sleep so important and what happens if we don't get enough sleep
1: Okay, well, listen, sleep, uh, I mean, if anybody has followed me on Twitter or anyone has had the misfortune of seeing me live at Research <laughs> Ed, um you'll know that sleep for me is incredibly important in terms of the narrative of well-being for pupils and teachers alike. And uh, I, I describe it very frequently as the, the low-hanging fruit of well-being. It's free it doesn't discriminate everybody everybody needs to sleep um and it's so pivotal to actually your well-being and i'm not going to filter it down to just it's so pivotal to your role as a learner if you're a pupil or a teacher if you're a teacher it's so pivotal in life across the board um that i mean simple the, the, the easy way is to invert that question and say well Try not sleeping to your consistent patterns that you enjoy or you feel you need. And if you think about somebody who hasn't had the the level of sleep that they know at a personal level allows them to flourish and function and be energetic, be effervescent, uh, make good decisions, have a healthy immune system, have a healthy nutritional diet... When you look at all of those things and they don't happen, there are simple words that spring to mind. There's tired, there's melancholic, there's a lack of focus, decisions become difficult, Um, movement can even, uh, cognitive decision making becomes slower, Um, and and the reality is that it has a massive impact on how we function on a day-to-day basis, and I mean, I, I think Russell, Russell Foster, a circadian neuroscientist, calls it the single most important behavioural experience for all. But it's not a pleasure for all. For others, it's a foreboding state. They don't look forward to going to sleep because they can't sleep well or it takes them so long to get to sleep. For others, they hit the pillow in 10 seconds, they're in cloud cookie land. <laughs> now, I have to say, I am the latter, Okay. I, I I hit the pillow and I'm in cloud cuckoo land in ten seconds, um, I, and that's a wonderful gift. Um, and I genuinely, I I, 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 it's a gift. You know, it's, there's no, there's no, um, there's no uh, accident that Shakespeare called it nature's gentle nurse. Um, and if you say to someone, do you enjoy sleeping, or do you like sleeping, or do you like the thought of going to sleep? Even ask pupils in a the class, there's a very very mixed response to some kids, that sleep itself precipitates anxiety, precipitates a a, a sense of foreboding because they think to themselves, well, it takes me so long to sleep. I wake up thinking about my exams or I wake up thinking about homework or I wake up thinking about relationships and stress. And for other people, they, they sail through sleep. So I think when you look at you know, if you look at the benefits of sleep, you know it's it's really really easy if you like to kind of classify why sleep is so important. There's a there's a there's a physiological overview of we sleep to restore, yeah, and that, that, that and that is what we call restoration theory. I think Craig, it's really important, and I would say this all of the time: sleep. There is no single reason why we sleep. There's very rarely in psychology one single reason why or one etiology that helps explain a behavior. And and it's not any different for sleep. If you look at restoration, restoration theory, what what we're thinking about there is kind of stages three and four when we're going to slow wave delta sleep. You've got that physicality and physiological regeneration, tissue repair. You've got your glycogen levels, your adenosine levels re- re-engaging themselves to kind of daytime, um, and you've got that opportunity um, to to have that, if you like that, restorative restorative sleep to give you that sense that when you wake up, you think, "Well, wow, I feel pretty good." You've also got the idea about. And this is a really important idea about information consolidation. And that's so important in schools. And we'll probably talk a little bit about that in the theory that sits behind that. But it's all about long-term potentiation and getting rid of memories that perhaps won't serve you well. And and, and then strengthening memories and synaptic connections and uh, during REM sleep primarily, which allow what you've learned during the day to be crystallized so when you go into an exam situation, the world of stress or the world of, um, you know, stress hormones, glucocorticoids and cortisol, they don't have the opportunity to stop you as easily in an exam context of retrieving what you already know. If we can engage in levels of sleep which allow us to have that strong synaptic growth um, during during REM sleep, um, it's, Massively important, massively important in schools for both teachers and 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 for pupils. But I just think it's something that because we all do it and because it's something which is part and parcel of being a human being and because it consumes a third of our life, we tend not to put a lens on it in terms of why it's important and what we can do to make it better if it isn't good.
0: It's fascinating you say that because I completely agree. It took me, God, how many years? Probably... 12 years of teaching before i had a conversation with the student about how they were sleeping it was just never never on my radar yeah. and yet the, the more you read the more you see what a game changer sleep is as you say well it's the key to well-being you, ju- you just feel yeah. crap if you haven't slept but also Absolutely. this is the this is the thing that fascinates me mark like I, as you know i've i had a bit of a mid-career crisis a few years ago i started reading about cognitive load theory bjork's desirable difficulties everything about long-term memory and um, working memory and so on in all those theories, you don't see one mention of sleep. Right. But as soon as if, you, if you're not sleeping, your working memory isn't holding as much information as it could. You're not processing stuff. You're not retrieving stuff. So why, why isn't sleep kind of at the cornerstone of all the theories of cognitive science that we read about? Because sleep's the key to memory. Right. Or at least if you're not sleeping, you're going to do really well to remember stuff. I think
1: it's, um, I began or begin my talks with it's not a big bang science, Craig. It's not a science where we're going to have these radical advances. Of course, the kind of we go all the way back to the 50s, um, um, the introduction, the the, the 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 understanding of the development of um, REM sleep. Um, and then the, the emphasis or, or from fMRI scans and the development of fMRI scans to what's happening during during sleep and your kind of electroencephalograms where we can measure brain activity during sleep they allowed us to kind of very 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 accurately um, kind of look at the, the, the stages of sleep so we would kind of in the UK we would have four non-REM and one REM America they, they, they put uh, stage three and four of non-REM sleep together. So they have three three stages of non-REM sleep, and, RE, and REM sleep is your fourth stage, if you like. We we have a pretty good understanding at a scientific level of what's going on in terms of the neural circuitry of the brain, in terms of synaptic growth, in terms of long-term potentiation, in terms of strengthening memories. Uh, we know physiologically about the benefits of kind of slow-wave sleep, delta-wave sleep, and... Kind of consumes. If you if you add stages three and four together, you might be talking about 20 percent of your sleep. So REM sleep, you might be talking about a quarter of your sleep. And, and if you put all those together, and you look at the benefits in terms of physiology of slow wave sleep, uh, neuropsychology and memory of REM sleep, then we know from experiments, and there's there's been a lot of experiments done on this. Um, Leading leading um, psychologists, are David Dingus at University of Pennsylvania, George Belenke, who worked at the Army Institute of Research, and they they kind of look at sleep research and try and extrapolate what the the main messages are. So, for example, if you sleep deprive someone, and you've obviously got strong ethical considerations when you're doing sleep research, Craig, because it's you know you you, you you're, you're involved in uh, a very expensive process in terms of sleep labs, mm. but you're also in, and so your, your numbers are small, obviously. Um, so your, your power size and your sample size is, is relatively low, but you extrapolate that to the general population. And, and there are things that they found which are incredible that, you know, that partial sleep deprivation, you know, even the dep- four, four or five hours sleep, which some people say they can function on that can have a massive impact at a cognitive level in terms of slowing down decision-making processes, poor decisions or poor, or slower movement, physiological movement patterns. Um, and also, you, cognitively, you underestimate how much your abilities have been attenuated. So when you look at it from the neuropsychology and, and, and you look at it from the research that's, that that's happened, it's not something that you're going to see on page one, page two, page three. It's not a CERN. It's not we've found the Higgs boson or the God particle. It, and that the, that lack a Big Bang and the fact that it, it's a longitudinal study with not really Big Bang announcements, I think people tend to put maybe less an emphasis on it. Um, it's It's
0: interesting, though, isn't it, Mark? Because like, I, I think... So if we take something like cognitive load theory, all all focused about let's make sure kids are paying attention and everything in working memory is focused on what you want it to be on. But if they've not slept so good, then the chance of that happening is drastically reduced, the chance of them successfully processing that information in the moment. And then if you think about long-term memory, and we do all this work on interleaving and spacing and all this, but if they haven't slept... That's all kind of gets thrown out the window, right? It's certainly not going to be as effective as it needs to be. It just its one of those things where when you read about how important sleep is, and particularly when you read it from from the perspective as a, as a t- of a teacher, it just blows my mind just how fundamental it is to everything that we try and do with our students, whether it is promote well-being or whether it is help them learn and remember and retain information. It just it blows my mind that it isn't at the center of of what schools do. Do, do do you know what i mean did did that surprise you when you started finding out more about sleep
1: i think it did I, I'm, I'm not gonna lie i think it did i think matthew walker's international bestseller why we sleep uh, which i mean it has i i think opened up uh, a huge um, and a level of analysis on sleep um at a societal level um certainly within the context of schools I think um, cams um, I think the um, mental health of young people has put a large emphasis on the importance of sleep because as, as you rightly say, there's a kind of retroactive impact where what what you've learned in terms of synaptic connections long term potentiation interaction between your hippocampus and your neocortex, yada yada um, they are really really greatly impacted by sleep or lack of but the converse is true, the proactive aspect is true also, where if you don't have that, it's not only what you have learned previously, but what you are going to learn Mm -hmm. and your ability to pay attention, your ability to to have less fatigue, your ability to to be able to encode a strength, which is going to be impacted as well. So there's a pivot point where it impacts on what I've done and what I'm going to do. Um, And... When you when you compound that, if you want to, if we want to accept that we live in a, a world of increasing pathologisation in schools, where everybody would like to have a label about why someone's not doing well, um, and I, I, absolutely, I think there is a case that we have over-pathologised teenage behaviour. I do think there's those teenagers or children who have legitimate. Clinical needs and a label and uh, a diagnosis and uh, interventions and support and treatment are all incredibly necessary, but I, I do think that googling the DSM five and looking at um, what why I'm anxious is not overly helpful for every child, and I think that precipitates as well when kids internalise that narrative about you know pathologised behaviour and stress and anxiety, juxtaposed against the assessments and, and high stakes exams in schools, then you've got that vicious circle where not sleeping well is merely compounded by the daily wallpaper that these kids live in. Uh, and that, that's 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 where we need to put a big emphasis on P S H E when you know, when the science of learning, when we're doing work with senior phase pupils in the science of learning and lawski and Bjork and Desirable Difficulties and Cognitive Load Theory, it's really important to say to them that there are aspects of well-being which are going to impact on how well this theory translates into your learning. It's not a pedagogical process, but it will allow you to, if, if you like strengthen or increase the odds that what you learned previously if you paid attention and you'd, you encoded well and there was a stronger retrieval strength if you' retrieved that a few times is going to continue to be at that level if we sleep well now the same is this the, the same applies to teachers you know teachers we don't we don't necessarily work shifts per se but if you look at the hours that teachers work, I think it's fair to say that a lot of teachers work a day shift and a back shift in terms of (laughs) the work they do at home, Um, and when you add up the hours, you know you've got that kind of impact on decision making, emotional responses in the class from a tired teacher. You know, you you said about feeling not that great when you wake up and go into a class. Well, how you deal with situations, whether it's inappropriate behaviour, whether or not it's that cognitive flexibility to be able to to tangentify, to give an example which helps solidify or crystallise what you're trying to teach, that's greatly, greatly impacted by a lack of sleep, as is your stress levels, your level of forgetfulness, your overall physical health. Um, And it's so important that a narrative of of sleeping uh, and sleep hygiene and how we can improve aspects of sleeping can't just link to the science of sleep, It has to have a reciprocally deterministic impact on the nature of your job and the acceleration of your job, the intensification of your job, and what you have to do in terms of your own well-being at at a wider level. So personally, and this may be unpopular, I don't have my emails on my phone. Otherwise, I would be there at 8.30 at night. Mm. Uh, I've done that. I've I've been doing... Worked till 11, 12 o'clock at night as a as a deputy head. I've answered 30, 40 emails at night in a school where I worked, at, which was a laptop school, and it was an expectation where you got asked, I sent you an email at 10.30 last night. <coughs> and the, the pause was, why did you answer? <laughs> okay, so my pause, which had a pause before off, was based basically, <laughs> basically, that's because I don't think that's healthy
0: well let, let's let, let, let's talk about this then mark because you're right one of the there is a danger the the other, the, the first danger is we completely ignore the importance of sleep the, the next yeah. danger is we think right okay sleep's important so let's make sure our kids are sleeping so they can yeah. p- remember things for exams but uh, as you rightly say there's teachers are just as important here need, needing to sleep so let, let's talk practical here what what, okay. what have you done as a, as a senior leader and in your school generally to promote better sleep amongst your teachers what are some of the practical things and and how have you made it
1: work yeah so one of the things that we did when we had our teach me okay we we spent a whole teach me on the science of sleep what does what is sleep why do we sleep what are the benefits of it okay and then we sent out 10 10 i was going to say 10 simple they're not if you like 10 um, the Ten Commandments of Sleep Hygiene and how we foster positive, if you like, precipitants and conditions towards trying to sleep well. What we've also done uh, in terms of that is we we actually spent uh, a, a full day, um, and and I think you had came up to speak at it, Craig, the North Lanarkshire Learning Festival, if you yes, remember it. Yes. Yes. We had a full day on well-being, a hub, a well-being hub. Um, and we we invited um, Suzanne Dedeke and David Cameron, and we spoke about sleep and attachment as well, and we spoke about the impact of um, you know anxiety and stress uh, compounded to adverse childhood experiences. Um, now, I'm not going to talk about the efficacy of of that narrative that there, there are things in that which I'm uncomfortable about, but that there is important tie ups with the nature of sleep and poverty and anxiety and stress and an over pathologized world that we live in um and but what you've got to do is get it into for us the pshe program with pupils so we wrote that in as a syllabus of work so every year group especially and this might be wrong but especially the exam years we give a talk an afternoon talk on the the science of learning they get done stuff we do it with parents as well but we also do at the same time we do as we do a whole session side by side with that about the benefits of sleep and then link the cognitive aspects to the cognitive aspects of sleep and memory and long-term potentiation and how they are incredibly 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 interlinked but we also talk about what happens in the house so if you look at nutrition You know, a lot of our kids are coming in with um, monster drinks, 600, you know, (laughs) 600ml monster drinks, and you just look at them and you just think to yourself, you just walk through that door. And if I was a Martian from another planet and I landed down, I would think that does not look healthy. (laughs) And the caffeine in that, you know, caffeine is the world's drug of choice let's be honest Craig it's the world's drug of choice it's omnipotent it's omnipresent sorry and when you look at caffeine it's a clever little thing you know it's a, it's called an, ARA, an adenosine receptor antagonist which essentially has that half-life of um, three to five hours so what your consumption of caffeine takes almost five hours to get to Half of it's still in your system and still having that impact on kind of blocking certain neurotransmitters, which may help modulate your, your sleep and your wake cycle. But it also has that that you, you know, it takes 30 60 minutes before it kind of kicks into its optimal amount, and it gives you that artificial idea that you've got that you know, that that, that um attention span and alertness, um, and. When you look at nutrition and you look at well-being, I think the generic model of what we are saying to, to pupils and, and staff is, it's not just sleep, it's well-being in general. So it's your work habits, it's your nutritional habits, it's your exercise habits, it's what do you do at night when you're at home. And, and we constantly, I wish we could do what Volkswagen Europe did and stop people being able to receive an email. Send an email if you want after 5.30, but create a system that doesn't allow that email to go into somebody's inbox after that Mm. until they get to work the next day some people need to write an email as a stress release they need to be on top of their emails in terms of anxiety i get that write your email but i don't need to receive it until the inbox opens at nine in the morning or half past eight or eight so there's a whole wider dialogue about sleep hygiene which it's well-being, but it's work habits, it's lifestyle habits. And it, it all coalesces into what we do in school. And, and learning is one of the biggest byproducts of our well-being. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And pe- when people think that well-being and, and, and learning is just learning is just this cognitive function, it's so not, and nothing exemplifies that better than sleep.
0: I'll tell you what interests me about about this, Mark. Now, well, we're going to talk a little bit later about growth mindset, and my theory of one of the reasons why often growth mindset doesn't have the um, kind of impact that a lot of people hope it will do in school is because it's very much focused on the students. The teachers talk about the importance of growth mindset, but always with the view that students, you've got to have a growth, you've got to have this growth mindset. Don't fear failure. There's no ceiling on your ambitions, and so on and so forth. But it's the teacher talking to the students about it. Whereas what interests me about what you've got going with sleep here in your school is it, it's as, in, as much important for the teacher as it is for the students. So it's kind of a bit of a shared dialogue. I could imagine teachers saying, look, I'm trying to improve my sleep by doing this. And then the pupils saying, well, I'm trying to do it doing this and so on. It's not that one direction from teacher to student as some of the things that we may do in schools is. Does that make sense? And is that an important part of it that kind of everyone's in this together trying to sleep better?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the bottom line is there's a, there, there, are, there are benefits in it to both. And it is the, the, the low-hanging fruit of well-being to both adult and to people, to teacher, to mum, to dad, to anyone, because we all sleep. And there are aspects of our lifestyle as human beings which are going to be impacted positively if we have a more definitive understanding of why sleep's important, how does it impact on my well-being and learning being an aspect to that well-being, and then how does that impact on my lifestyle? So, for example, I mean, I I always... We send out weekly blogs, as you know, at at St. Andrew's, Craig, and uh, some of the stuff I send out is on sleep. I, I sent out... My weekly blog once was... Ten, the 10 commandments of sleep hygiene so no naps after 3pm for example um, try not to exercise too late if you've got a sleep latency, sleep latency is that fancy term that sleep, sleep psychologists use for you go to bed and then how long does it actually take you to fall asleep so that period of lying in bed initially and then falling asleep we call sleep latency and the idea is if it's more than 20 minutes, get up, go downstairs get a cold drink come back upstairs, write something down that's on your mind, have that diary at the side of your, bo- your bed. Um, open the window so that your kind of core body temperature uh, falls and then that has an impact in terms of the release of melatonin, the suprachyosinatic nucleus, how that talks to the pineal gland, etc., yada, yada. So uh, uh, all of these things, and one of the things that I, I love and it's so simple as I say to teachers set an alarm to go to bed mm. set an alarm for finishing as much work as you can do it, as you're prepared to do at home and if you start your work at 7 and you set that, for alarm, that alarm for 8, your work's still there tomorrow and if you've got an SLT who can't accept that you're working at night and you're putting the effort in at night but you're Balancing that effort with an understanding that if you're overtired, overstressed, over anxious, it'll have a detriment, detrimental impact the next day to you as a teacher, ergo to them as a manager or leader, then quite frankly, they're not fit enough, they're not fit enough to be senior leaders. It's that simple.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a strong message, Mark, but I, I, I fully agree with it. This um, Just to clarify, the blog that you say you, you send out, is that just to just to teachers or does that go wider? Um, who does the blog go to?
1: goes to the teaching staff. Yeah, it goes to the teaching staff. And we, we kind of thematically, as you know, we, we only have one learning and teaching priority per mm, year. Yes. Well, our learning and teaching priority um, last year was differentiation. The year before was feedback. The year before that was working memory year before that was collaborative inquiry and that's it we have one so the whole year the whole situation of blogs goes out throughout each friday um and it has a the same theme throughout the year and we try not to send 10 15 20 we try and say i'm gonna be honest we try and send um research summaries um Mm -hmm. And, and we sometimes send powerpoints as well because we, we just we just wanna send a message about, you know, what what is important that may sit as a research or evidence base. Um, and actually remind me to talk about that when we, we go on to growth mindset. I will that. Be uh, because I previously about growth mindset and a real a real moral dissonance that we only think that it's important for pupils, yet we're really, really quick to put teachers down as yes. they're not that teacher well if teaching is learning and I'm a teacher surely a goodness the principles that I can get better and that uh, everybody can get better apply to me as much as pupils and yes there's a professional responsibility yes we have professional standards but create the climate and the conditions and the support where you can turn around and say I'm not saying you're not a good teacher. I'm saying you can improve. I'm saying everyone can improve because we can all get better, as Dylan Williams says. And here's some of the things that I can do to support you to get better. And now if the disposition is, no, I'm brilliant, I don't need to get better, then that needs a dialogue. Um, But because I think that's a wonderful example of a fixed mindset. Uh, And I'm not, I don't use that terminology. I'm not going to lie. The the wonderfully... um, um, Banal um, and uh, for me a tiresome dichotomy and uh, of fixed and growth mindset. I, I tend not to use. I'm not going to lie
0: well just before just before we get on to that you, you're teasing the audience here mark i like this Keep, keeping them keeping them hanging on for for the growth mindset just a, a couple more questions um, about sleep you um you mentioned these 10 commandments and you've you've mentioned yeah. a couple of them there and um, can you can you rattle them off do you do you know them off by heart or is it possible yeah. that, that that listeners could kind of get get hold of these could you share these because i'm thinking what what listeners really love are these practical takeaways and this sounds to me like a sort of kind of actionable thing that a school can really get involved in so so What are these Ten Commandments? Okay, ready? Yeah, go for it.
1: I feel a bit like Moses at the Mount. (laughs) Okay. Uh, (laughs) Okay, one, um, schedule and habit. Make sure you have alarm for bedtime and an alarm for stop working at night. And stick to that. Whatever you were doing will still be there tomorrow. To exercise, don't exercise, to exercise two to three hours before you go to sleep at the latest, okay, because you don't want to have your, your adrenaline running, you want to kind of start to slow the body down, you want to have your glycogen and adenosine levels coming down, your melatonin levels going up, remind me to talk about that with teenagers and why they're not lazy, because that's a misconception, will you remind me to talk about I will that? I I will do. Okay? I- Caffeine and nicotine at certain times of the day, I would say after five o'clock, don't have, because obviously the half-life of going through your system, we spoke about five hours for a half-life and much longer to, to entirely to, to dissipate. Uh, I've, do, not, I do not use alcohol as a sedative. Of course, having a glass of wine is fine, but if you need to take alcohol to fall asleep... Then I think there are wider things that are of concern with that one. What we also know about alcohol is it really greatly attenuates your kind of REM and the amount of time you spend in slow wave sleep. And you wake up, you know, sometimes you've, you've slept after a heavy night's drinking. You've had nine or 10 hours, yet you feel really tired. Well, that's the reason your kind of delta wave, slow wave restoration phase is greatly, greatly disrupted. Um, avoid large meals too late, too late at night. Okay, avoid medicines that may delay or disrupt sleep. Try not to take any micro-naps after 3pm. Um, try, if you can, a, whatever way you like to slow the world down, whether it's going for a walk with a dog, whether it's reading, whether it's watching a movie, um, whatever it is, try and do that as a routine um, after you finish your work at night. And, and, and ideally... If you don't need to work at night, and don't do it. There should be no compulsion that you put that pressure that you have to do two or three hours every night. I get, though, that that's a really simplistic statement from me and for some teachers. They have to do it to keep their head above water, and, and that's a wider issue about workload. Try try as far as possible um, to keep the room, the room cool. Open a window. okay. Um, try and keep it gadget-free. And if you are going to use your gadget, then obviously... You want, you want to kind of shift shift the blue light because that, was, that has an impact on melatonin and, and, and in terms of absorbing melatonin and not really having that impact on the, the, the secretion of it. Um, I think we can go to the, the kind of slightly softer yellow light on our, our phones. And the other thing I would turn around and say is try and get a, a, an exposure to to the day at some point. Now, for us in the UK, that's really tough, Craig. Mm-hmm. In the winter months, we go to work in the morning, it's dark. We come back, it's dark. So if there's a situation where you can get out at lunchtime, do yard duty, go for a 15-minute walk, go and do it. Don't even do duty, just do it without having to do the responsibility duty. Just get outside. Notice something. It's, a, it's what I said about the general aspect of well-being. Find, the way I see it, find a bright spot in your day something that you love whether it's reading poetry whether it's listening to a song whether it's going for a walk whether it's having a conversation with one of your friends try and find one bright spot throughout the day um, and i think that's really important
0: and those those 10 commandments mark would they be equally applicable to the kids Is is that the exact same message you you would give the kids and the reason i ask is i just worry sometimes is is there a a bit of tension between this this kind of stop working at a certain time at night I can imagine as a teacher I'm saying to I want my kids to be doing the homework doing everything and if I'm also saying but at 8 o'clock I want you to stop whatever you're doing well what happens if they for whatever reason they can't start their work until that time is is there any change in message that you give to your kids surrounding these commandments and do you find any kind of tension um, within them that stops us kind of getting the kids working the way we want them to
1: work. Yeah, that, that is such a complex question because you you then start to look at the systems and the culture, the values, the ethos of the mm. school and the life as well. Because okay, I'll 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 answer it in parts. Okay, the first one thing we know from kind of Uta Firth and Sarah Jane's work and the the, 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 ad- the development of the adolescent brain is that that is a period of increased risk taking. Okay, Their dopamine levels are increasing and the social factors of peer group influence, the sense of identity of self, sense of identity of group, the idea that they want a growing level of freedom from their family, a growing level of isolation when they hit that teenage years, um, married to this executive function and, and full brain maturation not still being there you know, you're, you're only talking about 75-80% of the teenage brain as being developed, It is what Lauren Steinberg called a, a wonderful developmental mismatch. So you've got all of those desires to be free and, and, and be isolated with your friends, but you don't have the cognitive functions to make the best decisions all the time. So when it comes to the neuropsychology of sleep, the adolescent brain is slightly, slightly, slightly different. So... The, 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 there's a suppression of melatonin when you and I are getting um, when you and I are getting tired, uh, but seven eight o'clock at night, and starting to increase a um, level of melatonin. So you're, you're, uh, super you know, your suprachiasmatic your SCN, which is basically responds to what we call an exogenous giver, a time giver, a time giver, which is external, which for most people is either noise or daylight when that daylight starts to dissipate and the pineal gland starts to secrete more melatonin at 7 8 9 o'clock at night we as adults are actively engaged in that process whereas teenagers are actively resisting that process so they have that they have that shift they have that circadian shift whereby they might get tired 2 or 3 hours after us so when you see a teenager saying right I'm doing my homework at 10 11 o'clock at night and you think my goodness that can't be healthy it may be depending on when they started it but physiologically it does match at a developmental level their their brain maturation and their physiological maturation now you have to juxtapose that against schools and say look how often do we have a joined up conversation across an academic calendar about how much homework's given when are tests given Um, are we when our internal internal or external assignments given do we have these pressure and stress points throughout the year that better dialogue and communication at school level would stop that is it okay to say to someone who's in year 12 and year 13 right i only need you to do an hour or an hour and a half every night do we need to say it's three and a half do we need to say it's four hours work these are questions that I'm not going to answer, but I think schools need to have the conversation because there are concomitant concomitant impacts on how well they do things and how tired they are when they get up in the morning at 7 or 8 o'clock. And I'm going to be honest with you, teenagers, the overarching message for adolescents and teenagers is that they're probably influenced greater by reward than punishment. And if their, if their punishment is, well, you're going to, I'm going to get you to do a detention and an after-school detention to do that, that's not as threatening to them as I'll take your phone off you or I won't let you go to that concert at the weekend or that football match. So th- there's real, real dialogue to be had in terms of how our culture of what we call increased attainment, wider achievement, impacts on the well-being of the pupils in terms of what they internalise as a message of how much work should I be doing for homework? How do I separate my homework from my study? How do I actually manage both of those before exams, before mocks or before your end of year exams? And I think it's really important at a school level at the start of the year to turn around and try and sync this academic calendar and say, Right geography, we've got an external assignment due in, in February. Psychology, so have we. History, well, we have also. Well, if you've got kids doing those subjects, that's tough. Mm. Really tough. So it's not always possible to come up with a solution. But in order, <laughs> in order to try and lessen that developmental mismatch by of adolescent brain development with the kind of social factors of you know, want to be part of a group, being more influenced by peers, having less control over their their, their, their kind of moral judgments and their, their, their inhibition and their inhibitory control. If we want all of that to kind of come together, then we have a strategic importance in school to have that dialogue. And I think that's the point I was alluding to earlier. At the moment, that's really tough in the climate of COVID. It's really, really tough. Because it's so operational about, so operational at the moment about masks and hands and corridors and one-way systems and getting kids in and out of buildings safely that it's it's really consuming.
0: Yeah, it 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 really is, Mark. And and you mentioned before about not to let you forget uh, to mention about teenagers are not lazy. Is is this is this a kind of knock-on effect? The fact that teenagers, essentially, as far as my naive understanding goes, their body clocks are kind of two or three hours ahead of ours so if they're they're more yeah. alert at night they're also yeah. kind of more tired in the morning is that the bottom line
1: yeah, that's, yeah i mean finally it's called a circadian shift but that's exactly what it is
0: and what's the what's the what's the implication there for, for for lessons and stuff and and of you as a as a teacher as a senior leader can you do anything to to account for the fact that kids teenagers are knackered in the morning and probably not at their best
1: well if, if you're listening to this and you are a classroom teacher, try and do um, okay, the limitations of self-reporting notwithstanding. Do a sleep survey. Ask the pupils how, on average how much sleep they get per night. Okay, The recommendations are about 9 to 10 hours. Okay, I will be very surprised if your average sleep in your class is any more than 6.5 hours. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And the second thing is juxtapose that against their weekend routine that six and a half hours might become eight or nine hours, but you get that social jet lags phenomenon where you have a sleep debt at the weekend incurred and, and because of your, your lifestyle throughout the school, school start times throughout the week. And we think that we can um, address that with um, a Friday night and a Saturday night long lie or long sleep, sorry, but it, that doesn't work. It doesn't address that sleep debt. So when we talk about Immune development and physiological development and brain maturation and neurosynaptic development—all of these things are impacted on what we do at a systems level mm. in schools, what start times we have, uh, the the workload that we ask for at home, the, uh, the, the 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 canteen food that we put on, the 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 the, the, the chip van that sta- it sits at the school gate, which is infinitely more popular than the salad bar and the canteen <laughs> and you you add all of those variables together and I, I, I please i hope i'm not painting this dystopian picture but what i'm trying to paint is that it's so complex in terms of developmental growth of the adolescent brain that the, the variables that we can control and influence we need to do as much as we can on that
0: yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Just just one final kind of practical thing from me, and I'd be interested in your take on this, and then we'll move on to, to growth mindset, is uh, we, we have a, um, a six-period day um, at our school. And I always used to think, for me, the kind of peak time to teach kids maths was always period three or period four because I always found period one or two, if I had, particularly if I had kind of, you know, 14, 15 and 16 year olds, they just weren't awake in those first couple of lessons. And then by the time they got to periods five and six, they'd had lunch. And if they'd had chips or fizzy drinks or whatever, they were just off their heads or they they were starting to get tired at that time. And that was big timetabling issues. I remember one year vividly, I had a pretty ropey class and I always either had them first thing in the morning or I had them last thing um, in the afternoon and first thing in the morning they're either knackered or they just weren't there because they hadn't managed to find their way into school yet. And last thing in the afternoon, you know, they they, they, they were they were just yeah they, they'd had enough of the school day by then. Like timetabling, it can play a really big role, can't it, in the kind of yes. outcomes that, that that happen. And that's another thing that needs to be considered um, when running that, a school.
1: And it's a massive impact. And and thank you for 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 bringing that to my attention because there is. We we have moved to a seven period day, three days a week in Scotland. So three days a week we finish at three forty-five, and there wow. are seven periods. So there's two periods in the morning, then a break, two periods, then a lunch time, and then three periods straight in a row, five, six, and seven in the afternoon. So you're going from 1.30, one thirty, one one fifteen to three forty-five. And I will tell you now, okay, that and I have as someone who te- who has taught. That period seven class is a tough gig. That is so <laughs> tough. Really, really is tough. I mean, it, it, it's hard. Um, and the level... Of, and, and I'm talking about me teaching psychology to year S6s or year 13s who are really motivated to want to do it. And I know, and I can look at them and I've said, look, I could be Einstein and I could give you the best What I could tell you uh, earth-shattering... Um, uh, equation which is going to just blow your head, and you wouldn't even write it down because you're not even listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could, I could save CERN all that money, and and I'm going to give you a new equation, and the Higgs boson's got a, a, another god particle, and you just would look at me because with the best will in the world, they're out of the game. They're gone. Their attention span has gone. And there is absolutely no doubt that a seven period day impacts on what what kids learn. Now, the flip side of that is, as you know, period one and two, especially for behaviour, people think, yes, I've got that bad class one and two, they're a little bit more so. Um, or I'll just give them a written task. If I give them a written task, it's less interaction. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's a wisdom and an accrued wisdom about time of day. Um, uh, nutrition caffeine at lunchtime and you know having having those big monster drinks and but having that period five anybody knows that period five after a windy day or a a fight outside that's carnage on the dance floor or even even now even now in in covid you know it's like getting them in after lunch is with the diet that they've had you've either got this you've either got this kind of brain-dead teenager in front of you who's had a munchie box of curry deep-fried sauce and, and, and you've got <laughs> had all of this caffeine and you just think my goodness, this is going to be a hard shift this afternoon. So yeah they all coalesce together in terms of timetabling and curriculum planning and there's absolutely no doubt that that's as a final, final point in, in sleep that that's absolutely critical in terms of why leadership in schools need experience and, a, and an accrued wisdom. And where sometimes with the best will in the world. I think those teachers who have got ambition, um, and it's absolutely wonderful to have that ambition. It's, it, it's not an automatic, I'm a class teacher, I'll be a principal teacher or a middle leader, head of department or a senior leader after an arbitrary period of time. I think there's a level of accrued wisdom that needs to happen at the same time. Um, And certainly what we've just outlined exemplifies that very well
0: fascinating fascinating stuff right well we've got just over 10 minutes left before we both got to go our separate ways so I just want to spend that time just <laughs> focusing on, um, on on growth mindset and I'll just give you a bit of background here Mark so I've, I've gone both ways on this so yeah. whenever growth mindset was all the rage and I was yeah. just lapping up everything I thought it was the best thing I'd ever heard about in my life and the kids were having these kind of one assembly at the start of the year the growth mindset assembly there was a few token posters banged up around the classrooms we chatted a bit about growth mindset and then surprisingly nothing magical happened with with, with the kids then yes. I started reading a bit of research when I was writing my first yes. book and then everyone was slagging off growth mindset saying there's no evidence base the findings aren't replicable it's dweck's yes. words it's a load of nonsense and so on so I'm yes. fascinated to get your take on this mark so my only question is Is growth mindset is it something that we that we as teachers can help our students develop or is it a load of nonsense
1: Oh, what a binary question! You.
0: <laughs> yes or no—that's your only options. <laughs>
1: are, you trying to, are you trying to get me in a litigious position with Miss Dwight? <laughs> uh, I would say to you that I think there are that there are merits in the. Okay, let me just answer it a different way. Okay, I think intuitively it's really appealing. It has it resonates with people's values. Um, and kind of egalitarian that there's no glass ceilings and everybody can fulfill their ontological vocation and be as good as they can be so at a values level it's wonderful isn't it it's wonderfully Mm -hmm. intuitively appealing Um, I think along with what Carol Dweck has said people conflate exactly what it is and I actually don't think the terminology that she uses is overly helpful so for a start it's a theory about intelligence it's not a theory of intelligence it's probably more a theory about motivation and and, and kind of humanistic psychology and how it dovetails in with, uh, with, with cognitive psychology um what i also think is and that carol dweck's work is longitudinal i think it's it, one of the most cited she's one of the most cited academics uh, in, in, and if you like academic discourse and writing so I absolutely believe that a lot of our work is is very, very robust and rigorous and properly researched and has a high academic integrity. Um, Otherwise, it wouldn't have that level of citation. Um, Where I feel there are issues uh, is perhaps, and I I need to say this in a careful way because I'm... I think we have litigious, litigious contact from um, New York um, or Stanford, but I think that there are a couple of issues with it. First of all, first of all, I think that people thought that the sentiments would supersede the pedagogy, and the idea, and the, I feel like the more abstract ideas about self-esteem and attitude and motivation well, they would exist in themselves without necessarily looking at the effective pedagogy that sits below those. And I think an emphasis went too much on attitudinal without looking still about what we do as teachers in terms of our craft and what kids do or what pupils do in terms of effective study skills and the science of learning. And I think that that, that became overly weighted towards the, the, the sentiments and the, the language of attitude and self-esteem without the substance that went behind that. Mm. Um, I also think um, that it was much more um, complex than what she ever imagined. Um, and I think she said that herself, that the development of growth mindset uh, as a theory about intelligence or motivation or human motivation is infinitely more complex than she ever imagined in in, in the first instance you could be cynical you could be cynical and say that it was commodified into um, a binary um, fixed growth entity incremental with the book um, the new psychology of success where it kind of spanned beyond education and went into the world. The witness became a popular bestseller. You could, you could, if you were so inclined, argue that there were commercial reasons for that. Not sure that superseded the the, the academic discourse. Um, what I would also say is that I think the the practice of theory to implementation has been very problematic. Carol Dweck herself, if you look at the language she has used previously, Craig, she says. You know, evidence that growth mindset a growth mindset can can work in a meaningful way for pupils exists, but not how to implement it in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if you were in the audience, you would turn around and say, "Well, first of all, what is the evidence that it can work in a meaningful way, and what do we mean by meaningful?" So, I, th- I think it's quite vague terminology. Um, I'm not overly sure what that means. Um, I think the other thing that's important about it is that. People thought, right, growth mindset. Um, okay, there, there's a certain degree of hermeneutic humility to put it in a philosophical way. Sometimes we don't know why things work. We don't know why the London challenge was overly successful to a really, really prescriptive degree. We don't know. We can't just and say it was definitely that. There are, there's more than one ingredient. And if you look at, if you look at the language of growth mindset, then what we have is we have this, we ha- I haven't learned that yet. Mm. We don't have a translation from the evidence to the research that create creates conditions that, it creates the conditions of the attitude, but does it create conditions about the same attitude in the same context in every school <laughs> with the same teaching staff? Mm. There are so many variables that impact on motivation and attitude that it's so difficult to say this this exists as a definitive research base. It might have created the conditions conditions in her research, and isolating the d- dependent dependent and independent variable, controlling as many confounding or extraneous variables as she can. But is that the same in every context? If we're talking about a theory of motivation and a theory of attitude, and I think what also is important is the, the semiotics, those wonderful headlines of. You know the, the posters that you, you alluded to around the school, or the assemblies that we we saw teachers give, and the glass ceiling presentations, and the, the 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 those awful failure walls, and the acronyms of first attempt in learning, and and then they go to the bottom set in maths after mm, that. Yes. And I think that for me, what's infinitely what would be infinitely more important is this banal. Um, Binary dichotomy of fixed and growth mindset. I wish that we would change the terminology, and I wish the professional discourse centred upon executive functions and the work of Adele Diamond. And I, I think, you know, executive functions in really simplistic terms are your kind of mental skills that allow you to manage your day-to-day routines. Um, and You know, you've got three main ones. You've got working memory, you've got inhibitory control, you've got flexible thinking, perhaps fluid intelligence as a synonym. If you look at that context, our understanding of of motivation and attitudinal development would be so much more informed if we looked at the development of executive functions in the context of growth mindset, as opposed to two words and a poster at the front of an assembly.
0: Well, knowing what you know about growth mindset, Mark, does it, does it play any role in the kind of dialogue you have either with your kids and that you teach or with your, your colleagues as a senior leader, or is it, is it just something that you don't engage with? No, no,
1: I think you always have to engage with it because I think when you're, especially when you're looking at um, certificate classes and the opportunity for kids to go on and do the highest level that they can, that you just can't impose glass ceilings just based on one test or one class test or one psychometric baseline test or one mock exam. And, you know, that's where the idea about growth mindset for staff, if you want to call it growth mindset, call it that. Um, That's where the idea about having a a meaningful data set and a meaningful understanding of relationships and narrative of kids at an individual level would allow you to say, Craig Barton, uh, I know he didn't do well in his mock, Um, I know he didn't do well in that test, but uh, that guy's got the opportunity and the ability if we just... Do we want to work with them? We might get pastoral support to call his mum. We might try and get one of the sixth their the teams to mentor him after school and academic tutoring. We might get someone from the Brilliant Club. All of those interventions, without becoming an intervention war, I think you could possibly talk about growth mindset as a, as a pseudonym for that. But I think what you're also talking about is values. But what I also think you're talking about is the understanding of your responsibility as an individual within growth mindset, it's not done to you, it's done in collaboration with you. So the idea about you know having a poster or just praising effort on its own, that's not enough. I need to equip you with the Dunlosky-style understanding about learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going to help me in terms of retrieval, low-stakes quizzing, um, elaborative interrogation asking why questions that's a growth mindset and what i also need to be able to say to you is if i put you in the room are you going to put the music on are you going to are you going to listen to the music Is your working memory able to to encode with with distractions are you able to 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 text back to your friends and say no i'm not going out tonight Um, thanks for the invite are you able to stop watching netflix and do your homework or study i think All of those aspects of executive function are indicative of what I would call um, skills, management decisions, call it what you want, which as nomenclature fit my understanding of growth and fixed mindset better as behaviours
0: fascinating fascinating stuff mark well I, what what's happened happened <laughs> here when when i interviewed you the first time round? i've got about 20 other questions that i want to ask you because we've not <laughs> to, we've not touched behavior we've not touched grit and resilience we've not done no. your reflections we've not done well, your big three so we're going to have to complete the ready? trilogy
1: i've got a wonderful earth-shattering breaking news for you go on i'm going, I'm going to read you angela duckworth's um book on grit you ready Yep. <laughs> perseverance The end <laughs> okay so we covered that
0: we <laughs> well that's that sorted okay that's fantastic <laughs> that's <not done. laughs> we may well dig into that a little bit more when you when you come back on the show mark well, but we're going to have to have a mark he- uh, healy trilogy here so we'll have you back on at some time. point in the near future but mark as ever it's been absolutely fascinating uh, thanks so much for your time
1: more than welcome listen thank you for the invitation Um, I really appreciate the dialogue take care
0: So there you have it. There was my interview with the wonderful Mark Healy. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. As I said at the end of that show, we're going to have to get Mark back on again because there's still loads of things I want to talk to him about. Behaviour um, is right up there on the top of my list. Um, I hope you enjoyed my previous uh, interview with Adele Bates all about behaviour. And I've got a feeling Mark's going to take a slightly different uh, approach to it. And I'm always interested when I have guests talking about the same thing, but from different angles. So I definitely want to get Mark on to talk about behaviour, particularly with all his experiences working in pupil referral units. Anyway, takeaways from this particular episode. Well, first off, um, we've got to address the current climate. So I'm recording this um, towards the middle of September 2020, when English schools have been back either a week or some have been back two weeks and there's no getting around uh, the fact that um things school life isn't as we've known it in the past with uh, with different think adjustments that need to be made because of uh, covid uh, masks being worn teachers stuck to the front of their room not able to wander around to speak to students to um, see how they're getting on and so on and so forth so i thought it would be interesting to get mark's take on that uh, considering that he's been at this uh, maybe three or four weeks more than many many of our english colleagues now it's interesting that mark said that um, operational issues are the focus for now just getting students and teachers ready to well used to new school life whether that's wearing masks whether that's teachers adapting to the new rules in the classroom and so on and, and previous priorities such as cpd unfortunately they they need to come later but it's interesting that um how do we find ways to spread good practice around the school because even things like traditional staff briefings in in the class in the in the staff room or Twilights or insets, they, they've got to change now with the social distancing rules and so on and so forth. So is it a case that you send around an email and sharing good practice? Is there a way to set up some kind of weekly blog like Mark talks about? just just sharing things that are working and letting other colleagues know about that in this environment is is a real challenge but it's something worth considering and and I'm interested how different schools have found ways to to make that work I also find it fascinating that Mark's single key piece of advice after five weeks of experiencing school life was to wear out the soles of your shoes whether that's being a senior leader in particular but also classroom teachers and middle leaders just wandering around the school making sure students know you're there both for support Supportive reasons, but also just in case behavior is taking a turn for the worst during um, what since students have been out of school and they're, they're now back in and it's a new environment and so on. So being visible, speaking to students, taking that temperature check and so on was Mark's key takeaway. And then I just wanted to talk about sleep, of course. Now, it'll be no surprise to long-term time listeners to the show, I'm a little bit obsessed with sleep. I love that uh, phrase that Mark used, sleep is the low-hanging fruit of well-being. And as I said, it absolutely fascinates me, uh, the more I read about sleep, that it's not right at the centre of school's kind of well-being policy, PS- PSHE policy, or, or whatever it is, because it's, Again, you can you can chuck out all that we know about working memory and long term memory if kids aren't sleeping enough because they don't focus as much in class. So they can't successfully process new learning. They also then can't process it at night and assimilate it and then they can't retrieve it the next day. It's, it's a lose, lose, lose situation. So it seems to me that it needs to be a school priority and I've spoke about this um, a lot um, a lot over the years, but it was fascinating to speak to Mark about the practicalities of actually getting this message across not just to students but also teachers. Um, now I've, I'm struggling loads with sleep at the moment. Part of the problem is I'm worrying about not sleeping and that's keeping me awake. Um, but I'm sure that's true for lots of people. Um, as, as I've spoken about on this podcast. I'd, I've really struggled during this this lockdown period just generally. And I'm still kind of coming to terms with lots of things with that. And it's really affecting my sleep. And I've noticed my performance just generally in everything is absolutely terrible. I'm, I can't get words out when I'm recording podcasts, when I'm writing diagnostic questions. I'm, I've, I wrote a question today. There were no correct answers. So that would have been interesting for students trying to answer that. I mean, running times are flipping, getting longer and longer and longer. Sleep its just, you know, it's its kind of nature's superpower. But it can be an absolute disaster if, if you can't get it, and the, the, it's, a, it's a vicious circle. The the least sleep you get, the more you worry about it, or the more I worry about it anyway, and so on. But I really like Mark's Ten Commandments for for sleep, and just some practical things just to do to to try and try and get back into that routine. But it's hard, isn't it? Like I find it so hard, so hard to. It's, my phone's the worst thing, you know. It's it's knowing that my mobile phone's there, knowing that Twitter's on that phone. It just it stresses me out without me knowing it, even if I'm not checking it, I'm, at a subconscious level, I'm sure I'm thinking about it. So I, there's certainly some things that I need to get a lot better at. And I think devices and I love that alarm bell, having that alarm clock at night that says, right, now is the time that I stop working and switch off. Having that external thing, that, that regulated scheduled thing, I think that was um, super useful advice. And it was interesting, wasn't it, about um, teenagers. And their circadian rhythms or their or their body clocks, how they naturally go to want to wind down later than, than adults, but also that that then manifests itself in the morning when they're not as, as awake as perhaps as adults are. And it, it, it really got me thinking about this timetabling issue. Um, when I first started teaching, I used to love having classes period one, particularly exam classes, because I thought that's when they're at their freshest. But now I'm not so sure, particularly when you get 14, 15 and 16 year olds, I think period one, they're just, they're just kind of waking up there. And um, okay, they might be quite subdued, but I'm not sure they're taking stuff in. You don't tend to get many behaviour issues, period one, but do you get some real good learning, particularly from the older students, period one? I'm, I'm not so sure. For me, period two is kind of the sweet spot. They, they've, they've warmed up during period one, period two, they're ready to go. Period three, after break, if something's happened at break, if the wind's been blowing or there's been some issue there, it could all be kicking off there but period three tends to be okay period four tummies are rumbling ready for lunch and then after lunch god only knows what's going to happen so period two for me is the the sweet spot but it's something that certainly needs considering during timetabling and god you could not pay me enough money to 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 be a timetabler with all the things you have to consider but we at our school in Bolton we used to have a a split of the year so you'd have two two sides to year nine two sides to year ten and so on And I remember there's been quite a few instances where one side of the year group um, has had maths like period two, period three, lots of morning. And then the other side of the year group, just the way the timetables worked, has had lots of afternoon classes. And I think it's like it really can affect learning, concentration, behaviour and and so on and so forth. So worth considering if you're a timetabler. But God only knows how you solve it. But I just thought I'd chuck that into the mix. Um, A couple of other things. So first, a general theme that came out of my conversation there from Mark was dialogue is the key dialogue between teachers between students and between their parents and that's whether we're talking about the importance of sleep so everybody's talking about the same thing singing from the same hymn sheet or whether it's behavior and I love that that Mark said parents should never be surprised and that's particularly the case I think in the current climate with so much misinformation bombing around so many scaremongering headlines and so on and so forth this dialogue between the school and parents saying look this is what's expected this is what we've put in place and why we've done this i think is super useful um so so there's no confusion there's no misunderstanding and it can really help support the messages that teachers say if parents are saying the same thing and then finally growth mindset uh, i remember when i was researching growth mindset for how when i was writing how i wish i taught maths and um, a lot of the the literature i was reading was was suggesting that that dweck's original findings were just um, not replicable um, that it was kind of done under very very specific circumstances that were perhaps difficult to, to do in kind of mainstream schools and so on and so forth. And that there was a lot more to it than just a message that failure is okay and you can succeed. In fact, failure is good, and there's there's no limit to ambitions and so on and so forth. And I I put the quote in the book, and I'll never forget this from a year nine student who'd just come out of an assembly on growth mindset. And I said to him, "How did you find the assembly? Was it good?" And he said, "Yeah, but it's kind of hard to have a growth mindset when you keep doing shit on tests, sir." And I think that for me is the kind of heart uh, get gets right to the heart of it. Of course, the messaging that you can achieve and that effort's important and that, that mistakes aren't bad and that failures and an, a necessary and normal part on, on the way to success. Of course, those messages are important, but for me, they have to be matched with an experience of success. If kids haven't at some point felt successful, whether it's you know in in mathematics they've done well on a test or they've understood something or so on and so forth, if they don't have that bedrock of success to fall back on, then all the positive messages in the world just aren't going to mean anything to them. So that that for me is just as important, if not more important, than the <coughs> kind of growth mindset messages. That's to make kids feel successful. I just, for me, that that that's what it all comes down to. Making kids believe that they can be successful if they put that effort in. But they've got to have experienced success for, the, for that to happen. And the final point I wanted to make was just, just something I've been thinking about. Um, I always go for a walk after I do my interviews just to try and get my head around the things that I've learned in the conversation. And one thing that, that struck me when I was trying to tie this together was that the evidence for growth mindset is really mixed. When you, when you read the literature, as I mentioned, a lot of Dweck's findings, uh, people have not been able to replicate it. And yet growth mindset is talked about in schools far more so than sleep, where the evidence is really, really, really clear cut particularly that if you don't get enough sleep there are so many negative things in terms of memory, mood, health, life expectancy, all kinds of things. And it just fascinates me that, that, that again I'm going full circle here, that sleep isn't at the forefront of lots of discussions and, and school policies and, and action plans and movements and so on. You We often kind of promote things in school that have a really mixed evidence base i always go back to things like learning styles and so on that turn out to be a load of nonsense now i'm not saying growth mindset is nonsense but in education i think we have to think about best bets things that you know we're not, gar- we're not 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 certain that they're going to work but it's a pretty good bet and for me sleep is right at the top of that list if we can help our our students and our teachers sleep better by promoting these positive messages surely that's a good thing surely that's that's going to have a real long-term positive uh, impact and the final thing i'll say is just like growth mindset it's not enough just to have an assembly on the importance of sleep and then just mention it once. Just like anything, whether it's whether it's learning how to add fractions together, saying it once doesn't cut it. It's all about reinforcing that message. And if we've developed a school culture where where teachers have learnt themselves about the importance of sleep and they're talking to their kids about what they're doing to sleep better and it's regularly coming up in conversations and we're doing sleep surveys with kids or asking kids on a regular basis every couple of weeks write down how many hours you slept and we're, we're celebrating the kids who've put in nine hours sleep we're celebrating the kids who went to bed at half seven and so on and so forth and had an absolute crack in sleep or even, I don't, I don't know the ethics of this but the kids who are wearing the smartwatches or... Fitbit or whatever it is, kind of sharing their sleep records and say, look at how much deep sleep I managed to put in. Just making conversations about sleep the norm and not being this competition that, wow, I only did three hours sleep, I only did four hours, but celebrating the fact that we did long hours of sleep I think could be a really positive thing but I bang on about that all the time you're sick of hearing about that so let me wrap things up so all that remains for me to do is once again thank my wonderful guest Mark Healy he'll be on the show again at some point in the future I really hope anyway and thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show thank you to my wonderful sponsors uh, you help me be able to pay for hosting and all that to, to keep these shows going and thank you to you my lovely loyal listeners for keeping on tuning in in your thousands you're the reason that I do these shows If you want to help support the podcast, the easiest thing to do is um, put a review wherever you get your podcast from. Next, easiest thing is to recommend an episode to a colleague, perhaps this one, if you you think they might be interested in sleep or growth mindset. And if you want to, you can also support the show uh, by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Maths. But there's no pressure to do that whatsoever. All links are in the show notes. Anyway. Let's leave it for now. It's late at night. I'm going to go to sleep. So thanks so much for listening. Well, hopefully I'm going to go to sleep anyway. Thanks so much for listening. You take care of yourselves. And bye for now.